Okay, boys and girls, it's finally happened. Welcome to this, a rank punditry episode of the Tech Policy Podcast. I am your host, Corbin Barthold. It's just me today, no guest. The topic is important enough that I wanted to get on and do an episode specially devoted to it, and it's a bit spur of the moment. I've gotten my kids down, getting some coffee so I can keep going, because I think we need an episode on Gonzalez versus Google, the Section 230 case at the Supreme Court. Oral argument will be occurring on February 21st. That is coming up very quickly, and I wanted to get some thoughts down. This is a new experience for me by myself. Thank you for doing it with me. I'm wondering if I should adopt my Sam Harris voice and speak the whole time as if this is a guided meditation about internet law at the Supreme Court. Don't worry. I'm not actually going to do that. Um, I want to get through a bit of what's in the briefing there have been a thousand amicus briefs. I will not be running those all down, but at least the merits briefs. And then what to watch for in the oral argument. Bit of a preview of what we can expect. Maybe do a bit of tea leaf reading. If a case ever warranted it, it's this one. The law that created the internet. The 26 words that created the internet in the title of Jeff Kossoff's great book on the, on the subject. Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, that is the law that it is within. It is more commonly known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That is a bit of a misnomer. It was actually Senator Exxon's bill that would have banned pornography from the internet, basically, that gave it that name. That law was struck down in the famous case of Reno versus ACLU back in 19. 97, but Section 230 has kept that name causing confusion to this day, right down into the amicus briefs in the case in which several people who should know better act like Exxon's wording somehow informs Section 230, which Chris Cox and Ron Wyden did not intend to do when they crafted the bill. It was an, it was an answer to Exxon's bill, if anything partly also a response to a case called Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy created something called the moderator's dilemma said you do any moderation on your website you actually up the amount of liability that you're exposed to section 30 aim to fix that that's another fallacy we're running into in some of these briefs so let's begin with the obvious the refresher for most of you no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Those are the famous 26 words. That's 47 USC section 230C1. Devoted students of the law know there is also section 230C2, which is often a topic of conversation, especially among conservatives who are very angry about what they call big tech censorship. That is not an issue in the case, although it could be the Supreme Court justices are supposed to decide only the issue that's before them, but uh, nobody reviews their decisions, so we'll see what happens. So ISIS killed Nohemi Gonzalez in the November 2015 Paris attacks. There's no direct link between uh, YouTube and Gonzalez's death, but her estate uh, sued YouTube, owned by Google, under the Anti-Terrorism Act, claiming that uh, YouTube, Google owning it, uh, is responsible for her death, uh, at least uh, secondarily liable for it, because they had ISIS content on their site. Again, no evidence that YouTube was used to plan the attacks or to recruit the attackers. Gonzalez's family sued YouTube's owner, and the trial court applied Section 230. It dismissed the suit. Very straightforward. 230, if it does anything, it says with limited exceptions that you are not responsible legally for the content of third parties. That's what those 26 words I just read basically mean. So that was not a surprising result. Went up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. 
it affirmed that is also not a surprising result, but we got a couple separate opinions saying that were it not for prior panel precedent, those judges really would have liked to have let the suit go forward. There is no circuit split in this case, which is very odd. There is another decision out of the Second Circuit that basically dealt with a very similar situation where the, the underlying theory was that algorithmic recommendations don't receive Section 230 protection. And there as well, the Court of Appeals rejected that argument, albeit again with a separate opinion saying uh, that the judge basically wished it were otherwise. Uh, but separate opinions do not a circuit split make. That is not how this normally works. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court granted cert and agreed to review. So right off the bat, that is an odd situation. The Supreme Court normally takes no interest in statutory interpretation unless the courts of appeals disagree about the meaning of the statute. Only then, normally, do justices step in to resolve the dispute when it comes to just mere issues of reading statutes. So the fact that when it comes to the target recommendation theory, we have two circuits who have held that Section 230 governs as usual, and none that has disagreed, that's worrisome for those of us who believe in Section 230 and uh, hope it's properly interpreted, because why is the Supreme Court coming in here? Uh, it really is an ominous sign that some of the justices have an itch to do mischief here. And as we know, uh, Justice Thomas uh, leads the charge in that regard. He issued a statement regarding the denial of cert in a totally different case on a different issue called Malware Bites a few years back, in which he questioned the dominant interpretation of Section 230 throughout the courts of appeals, throughout the courts in the entire country, down in the trial courts, uh, basically accusing judges of interpreting the statute based on policy, infusing it with, with their policy concerns instead of just interpreting the text, and that in doing so, they had made Section 230 too broad. What he's basically saying is that those judges too blindly, I suppose, followed a decision called Zarin versus America Online that was issued not too long after Section 230 was passed, written by J. Harvey Wilkinson III, a very respected judge. Impeccable reasoning, in my opinion, but Thomas didn't like it and basically says uh, other courts should not have followed it. Zarin reaches what is actually the pretty common sense conclusion if we return to no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, to read the words to you again, that publisher or speaker in that sentence should be understood as the traditional meaning of publisher, meaning the traditional functions of an editor, figuring out how to place content, what content to emphasize, put up, take down, withdraw. That is simply applying the ordinary meaning of the word publisher. It's really not something to get upset about unless you start to have the politics-driven concerns about how very large platforms are deciding to moderate content. Notice that it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service. Interactive computer service, broadly speaking, means a platform, a website. Anytime you're on the internet basically surfing around, you are running into interactive computer services. But because it says no provider or user, that is extraordinarily broad. So we're not only just talking about websites or large social media platforms. We are talking right down to individual Twitter accounts. We are talking about blogs. You write a blog and you repeat third-party content, you are protected. If you were on Twitter and you retweet material, you enjoy the protection of Section 230. Fundamentally, Section 230 protects the internet. But I said politics-driven concerns. Th those really arise out of looking specifically at very large social media platforms, which arose long after Section 230 was actually passed and acting like Section 230 only applies to them. And therein lies 
sort of the impetus behind these challenges to cut down the Zarin interpretation. And so if you ask me, why did the Supreme Court agree to hear this case, despite the fact that there is no circuit split? That's the best I've got for you. Who who knows? Obviously, the Supreme Court in doing certs, uh, they, they never give reasons for why cert was granted. But the, the best I can do is that several of the justices, at least four, it takes four to grant cert, are interested in looking over this law because of basically grievances that are um, sort of a, a practice in revisionist history in terms of looking at the statute. Now, to be fair, there has not been a Section 230 case ever before the Supreme Court until this one. So one slight alternative would just be to say, hey, uh, you know, this is a very important law. Everybody's talking about it. It's been subject to criticism from kind of all sides. We, you know, we need to finally step in. It still raises the question, though, you know, why this case? The Gonzalez petitioner's theory is that uh, you put content up and you place it on your website. You are protected by Section 230. But the moment that you recommend it, some, you know, you lose Section 230. And they try to make that distinction. In their petition before the court, they were very blunt about that. They presented the question quite simply as, does the act of recommending strip you of protection? They proceeded to get the cert grant. They changed it. They totally hedged and, and went back and said, okay, well, under what circumstances does a recommendation strip you of protection? It is a struggle at times to understand precisely what their position is. And I expect at oral argument that we will find that the justices lean very heavily on the United States in trying to figure out what to make of the petitioner's side. So, you know, why did the petition get granted? I do think that those justices who wanted, you know, not just to take a look at Section 230, but maybe to narrow it, maybe they looked at recommendations and they thought, okay, great, you know, there's some way that we can sort of bite off a piece of Section 230, narrow the protection, maybe sort of in line with Justice Thomas's complaints that Zarin is overbroad, and then, you know, kick it back down into the lower courts as a, as a chastened doctrine. And I think as they dig into this, they're going to find that that is a lot harder than it sounds like with the concept of recommendations recommendations are essential to the modern internet. Curating the fire hose of information that is presented on even relatively small chat rooms or bulletin boards as they currently exist today, never mind a social media platform as currently relatively modest as Mastodon, Never mind the giant social media platforms, curation of information, which is recommendation, is so crucial. And yet there's there's really no actual logical line between that recommendation and the recommendation that a traditional publisher does, say, in deciding what goes on the front of a newspaper. I'm sure I'll be returning to that point. They run into exactly that problem. They are struggling almost in real time in their brief to come up with the arguments that allow them to, you know, ideally that's what you'd want. You'd want some kind of way to sort of clip the wings of 230 if you're on that side without wrecking the thing. And, and that's just a struggle for them to find. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the attempts to somehow, any way possible, um, distinguish this case from search engines. Everybody seems to recognize that a ruling that strips Section 230 protection from search engines, nobody, nobody wants. That's bad news. And yet, really, what's what's the difference? So the, the Gonzalez petitioners, you know, their fundamental complaint now, it's taken them a while to sort of evolve to this point in their arguments. But it's that YouTube, back before these attacks occurred, had you know, the up next feature, you know, as you're watching a YouTube video, it offers you that next up and it says, you know, this is the video that will will play next. I, I, I don't know how it was back then. I can't remember. But I know now on my YouTube, I bring it up, it'll play it automatically even. 
And that that feature, that's what doesn't get Section 230 protection. But that's awfully darn similar to the way that if you go into Google and you punch in a query, it starts serving you up content. And it's in effect saying the up next. I mean, as you go through the pages of a Google search result, that's pretty much what it's doing. It's a very similar kind of function. Uh, so what do they do? What, what's the petitioner's basic line of attack here? They, and again, it, it actually, it shifts around. It's really hard sometimes to tell how far they want to go. But their their main thrust is that publisher in Section 230C1 is used as a term of art derived from defamation law. And, you know, there were, there were special principles for defamation law publication. A key aspect of it was that it was actually seen by a third party. And then there are, you know, specific elements of that tort there's really no need to get into that, though, because we normally just look to the ordinary meaning of words used in a statute, and there's no real need to do any differently here. It says you won't be treated as a publisher of information. There's nothing in there that implies that some special technical sense of defamation is meant. Uh, ba- you know, fundamentally, Zarin got it right. That protects you from liability when putting up third-party content as you conduct the functions of a publisher. Decide what to put up, decide how to show it, decide what to emphasize, decide what to take down, those things you are protected. As uh, Barnes, a Ninth Circuit decision, put it, whether the cause of action inherently requires the court to treat the defendant as the publisher or speaker of content provided by another is what matters. You have the problem that follows on. If it were all about defamation, that would be a super easy thing to plead around. We'd want a real signal that that's what they meant because Section 230C1 would actually do very little. Think of the uh, cause of action for intentional infliction of emotional distress, which is just one example. There are several other torts like it where you're basically arguing, you know, alleging the exact same thing you would in defamation. The elements are quite similar. You just get rid of the publication requirement. You're good to go. You, you get around Section 230 under the petitioner's lead theory. Doesn't make any sense. You add to that the fact that Section 230E contains exceptions that wouldn't make any sense if Section 230C1 were limited just narrowly to the, the tort of defamation. So, for instance, Section 230 does not protect you from federal criminal law. And Section 230 does not protect you from intellectual property violations. Well, those things are not related to defamation. If Section 230 were just about defamation, there'd be no need to put those exceptions in there, or at least they'd be much narrower. They'd look very different. And so, so, you know, that being the lead theory, it kind of falls right at the outset. And then the petitioners are just sort of left grasping from there. I mean, they, they cite a lot of cases to try to support this point that don't make this point. They support, uh, they, they discuss, for instance, the infamous, you know, r- roommate's decision from the Ninth Circuit, well-known decision that makes the quite reasonable ruling that if you actively solicit illegal content, in that case, it was a housing website, and the way that their questionnaire was set up basically required users of the website to put in information that violated the housing law, like stating preferences about sex and sexual orientation for potential tenants, you know, then you don't enjoy Section 230 protection because you've materially contributed to the illegality in the content. Well, that is not saying that Section 230 is limited to defamation. In fact, if they'd said that, their analysis would have been a lot simpler and more straightforward. They could have said that this lawsuit is brought under the housing discrimination laws, not defamation. You know, boom, we're done. That is not what they said. And therefore, it doesn't belong in a section trying to narrow Section 230 defamation claims. That's sort of the flavor of the argument that occurs in the petitioner's brief. You know, they they try to create lines where sometimes they're saying, well, you know, recommendations aren't always going to be unprotected or it's not a big deal if they're not protected. Um, Then at other times they make 
uh, much stronger claims that no recommendation is protected if you are, at one point they state, uh, a claim seeking to impose liability asserting that the recommendation itself was a cause of the injury to the claimant. You know, that shouldn't be protected. Well, that's just going right. It's it's falling back to the question presented they put in their petition, trying to have the whole thing. So they're not great at planting their flag and really making a clear argument and sticking with it, which is not a great place to be. That's one thing I'd say that at the oral argument, we're likely to see the justices really trying to hammer down for the petitioners. You know, what is your position? What is protected? What is not? I think I'll get into the real parlor game and say my prediction is Justice Kagan will be the leader of that. Um, she tends to be very incisive with these kinds of arguments when a brief is not good at making really, really clear, really crisp, you know, this is what we want from you, court. Kagan is often very, very good at at pressing that and sort of twisting in the knife and saying, no, 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 I don't get it. You know, I'm going to keep questioning you until you commit to a position here. Um, I want before sort of moving on from that point also to pick on the line that they say, you know, recommendations might not be protected. That's not a big deal. You know, you're still protected by the First Amendment. Even some recommendations that you put out that might contain within them, you know, questionable material, you you know, you're still going to win your lawsuit. I I really, (laughs) really bugs me that somebody's going to show up in court and make that argument because there's so much case law setting out clearly, you know, the whole point of Section 230 is to not put litigants in the position of having to fight out those cases. Death by a thousand duck bites, as it as it is put in in one precedent, uh, the litigation expense of just getting rid of those things without the Section 230 shield would be immense. And the example I would give there is some of you might recall a Supreme Court case called Snyder versus Phelps. That was about the you know, God, I'll go ahead and just use it. I mean, like the God hates fags signs uh, that were put outside of a soldier's funeral. And, uh, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church, they get sued for intentional infliction of emotional distress and a few other uh, torts. And it's a nice example of a pure First Amendment case of were these signs in this protest protected by the First Amendment as against torts? And the court said, We are required in First Amendment cases to carefully review the record, and the reach of our opinion here is limited by the particular facts before us. And they went through a very careful analysis. You know, was the speech on a matter of public concern? Did Phelps, you know, the leader of the church, stay far enough away from the funeral to ensure that only his views were at issue and not his conduct? Were there potential time, place, or manner restrictions that might have been justifiably imposed? All that kind of stuff. Very careful opinion. Without Section 230, just making uh, websites fall back on the First Amendment, you're going to be battling out those cases based on close factual questions every single time. It will be an utter morass. There are millions of close content moderation calls a day. Um, And if you... Or to try to put judicial process into those, I I don't know how that would be possible. The system would simply grind to a halt. So to protect themselves, all websites would start super moderating and taking down anything that was remotely questionable. The rest of the petitioner's brief doesn't offer a whole lot. They try to say that there's somehow a distinction if the interactive computer service makes a recommendation that the user didn't ask for. And that's really an arbitrary distinction that doesn't get you around the search engines, for instance. Sure, you watch a YouTube video and the up next box offers you a video uh, that you didn't ask for. But do you really ask for each individual result in a Google search? In neither case uh, can you purely be said to be give, be getting information that you asked for. You can't predict what Google or a search engine is going to give you in response to a prompt. 
Um, that is the kind of distinction you only make if you are in need of some kind of arbitrary distinction to distinguish your case from the case that you, you know, where you don't want your rule to apply. You know, my, <laughs> that decision was issued on a Tuesday, so it doesn't apply here because I'm asking you to issue your decision on a Thursday kind of thing. Even worse, uh, they argue that if a website creates a original URL to itself with content, that that somehow takes it out of Section 230. You know, that's even worse. Uh, come on, guys. Like, that has nothing to do with the actual underlying content that's provided by the third party. That That's a real non-starter. So... Overall, you know, the take home is that the petitioners do a pretty poor job of actually explaining what lines they want the court to draw. They don't effectively differentiate search engines. And so let's turn to the U.S. brief, because I think that's the one that's going to get the focus from from the justices. The solicitor general rejects the petitioner's primary argument that somehow defamation pops in because publisher is this term of art and section 230c1 applies to defamation only they they certainly reject the url theory they also reject and maybe i'll circle back to this one justice thomas's distributor only liability theory where he tries to differentiate publisher from distributor liability put a pin in that but the main thrust of the United States brief, and I thought this was going to be more the main argument in the case, they want to say that if you disseminate content in some way that is organized akin to, I don't know, what a newspaper does, you're fine under Section 230. But at some point along the line, if you get too good at the recommendations, if your recommendations get too targeted, you lose your Section 230 protection. It's the super targetedness argument. Somewhere you are no longer a publisher because the magic of algorithms strips you of your Section 230 protection. That is hammering jello to the wall. Let's put it that way. You know, they say, quote, a website's choices about the organization and presentation of user generated content do not constitute the creation or development of that material. Uh, but once you're deciding how to organize or present, that really is no different than using algorithms to try to predict, you know, up next for you as you do on, on YouTube video. As Google says in its brief, sorting is sorting. You decide because you, you know you're ABC and you um, put Die Hard at 10 p.m. This is an actual example in their brief during your Christmas marathon. And side note, yes, Google does take a position that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, uh, so they're just entering into all kinds of controversial territory in this case between Section 230 and Die Hard. Anyway, Die Hard at 10 p.m., you put Elf on at 7 p.m. because you decide that that's more family friendly. There is nothing in logic that distinguishes that from YouTube deciding that you've watched this cooking video for making the uh, lamb ragu. Up next for you, a video about the uh, steak sirloin, because that seems to be what you're into and that's recommended where on the continuum between those two things do you draw the line? How do you draw that line? Who Everything is done by algorithms. I mean, even chronological feed is an algorithm on a website. That is a algorithmic choice. What is the actual limiting principle or the actual logical principle that distinguishes these things? And at the end of the day, although the U.S.'s brief is well put together as the solicitor general will always you know do it it doesn't provide it i mean it waves a hand at the notion that a user puts the search query in in google and that that's somehow different from the youtube example uh, but it doesn't flesh it out it actually it just gives a string site to lower court cases holding that oh of course section 230 protects search engines and then kind of says, well, then, OK, we can carve that out. But they never actually explain why. What is the difference? 
Whereas the justices, I think, will come in and give the petitioners a lot of trouble about, well, what is your argument at all? What, <laughs> what do you want us to do? I expect the Solicitor General during that portion of the argument to get a lot of questions about, you know, what is the line here? How do we distinguish search engines? Give us, especially for those who want to limit 230, give us something to work with. You know, what is the what is the limiting principle? Okay, having covered the petitioner's brief and the United States brief, um, and also what I just said there of, of what I think those two groups are going to get uh, from the justices, let's transition into you know the oral argument. What should we expect? And I think if you're you know the chief justice, you're John Roberts, and you want to write a nice narrow opinion that just you know resolves this case on clean grounds, you're not looking at other cases or whatever, you're just looking to see who wins here. Google's brief has given you everything you need as without going too far into Google's brief itself, just by discussing the petitioner's brief and the United States brief, it should be already pretty clear what I what I think is going on here, that this is a clean cut victory for YouTube. Putting up the up next video is classic publisher behavior. It really can't be distinguished from making the decision of you know what goes on page A1 versus what goes on page D6. Uh, this is pretty simple. Let's all go home. Uh, circling back to the question almost of like, why did the justices grant the case? So to the extent that there's drama at the oral argument, I think it will all center around if any justices are grasping you know, to go beyond this case, maybe that some of the drama will be finding arbitrary lines, you know, that you'd need for Google to lose here. But then also, are they trying to go beyond this case and get to some of the other controversial issues that have swirled around Section 230? There are two ways to get around Section 230, basically. Obviously, there are more. But um, in terms of the precedents that we have seen on which the defendant has lost with their Section 230 defense. Either the claim is not seeking to treat you as the publisher of the underlying material in some way, or it has been concluded that you, in fact, are the content provider in some way. Those are the two routes. And although I don't think there's any way to get far with either of those here for the actual case at hand, there are lines that are tough for those doctrines. There are gray cases. As Google acknowledges, a newspaper can defame somebody by putting, you know, this photo here and that headline there. And as they note, that's classic publisher behavior, but you can always tweak the facts and finally get inches by inches into something where, okay, now you've created the content. So one case that actually exists is Snap created an app where it would for you, you know, take your speed and put it up and show you not only how fast you're going, but then allow you to push out, you know, social media posts with that app showing how fast you're going. And some teens Basically, you know, I don't I assume they were trying to one up each other, or whatever, may, you know, got into a car accident and died. And the court held, look, you you are materially contributing to the illegality here by having an app that uh, basically is, you know, defectively designed because it's all about, you know, posting speeds that's dangerous. Well, it's a continuum. It's a continuum between that, you know, and roommates where you're soliciting information in a particular way that creates the illegality back down into, you know, there was a lawsuit involving a website called The Dirty, where it actively solicited sort of salacious gossip that, you know, there was bound to be defamation in some of this material. Take yet another step back. You've got uh, Glassdoor seeking uh, employer reviews. They're not actively seeking like salacious ones, but in the course of getting a bunch of employer reviews, you're gonna get some that are controversial, that are one star, where the employer you know thinks they're being maligned. Um, 
back into YouTube having recommendations that are totally neutral. They're not like looking out for ISIS material. They're actively trying to suppress it, but some of it sneaks in there and it ends up in the up next maybe. Um, that's a continuum. And so I would expect the justices to be probing some of those lines. I don't think it gets the petitioners anywhere here, but I would expect Google maybe to get some hard questions about, okay, at what point are you true? You know, are you no longer acting as a publisher, but you are creating the content? So I think there will be some questions there. And, uh, you know, we could end up with a bad precedent that doesn't really take aim at this case, but gives, you know, bad language about what counts as, uh, you know, you creating the content in other cases that then gets used in the courts below. So that's one issue. Um, another big danger Google faces is, you know, justice is probing for questions somehow to make a ruling that is, you know, for this ride only, somehow that relates only to terrorism content that could still end up having a lot of adverse consequences. But yeah, I mean, I think all of the all of the drama, you know, the, the thing to watch as we go through oral argument is to what degree do justices do the justices want to use this case as a vehicle to tackle other Section 230 issues, you know, even if it's in dicta. Um, so I mentioned a few minutes back the publisher versus distributor distinction. Uh, it's actually a fallacy. It was addressed all the way back in Zarin. I'm not going to do it full justice here, but the short version is, you know, Zarin addressed this. Uh, under old defamation law, there was a distinction between a primary publisher and a secondary publisher, also called like a publisher versus a distributor, where a distributor is like, say, a bookstore, whereas a publisher is an actual book publisher, and the uh, standards of liability were distinct where if you were a distributor, you, you could only be held liable if you knew or should have known of the defamatory content that you were putting out, whereas the publisher was held to a higher standard of liability. And that's faulty for a couple different reasons. I mean, for one thing, actually, the way it was treated was that a distributor was actually just another form of publisher, but treated to a different standard of liability. So they're all publishers. So they're covered by the word publisher in Section 230. And then logically, even if you were a distributor, you know, the whole thing is known or should have known. The moment somebody brings content to you, you're put to the decision of a publisher. The, the moment somebody complains, you have to make a decision whether to leave up or to put down. So now you're basically a publisher. So the distinction between them is actually pretty illusory. And just basically going back to a point from much earlier... There is no reason to import technical concepts of defamation law into Section 230. Publisher in its ordinary meaning is just doing the functions of a publisher. I will say it for the 10th time, take up, leave down, what to emphasize. And that's the best reading. So that theory really doesn't get far. And it's not brought up by petitioners and it's not brought up by the US. I think I've got that right. But it comes up in several of the amicus briefs. It was an issue that Justice Thomas was very interested in. Like Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz both come into the case and try to make that argument at points. So we'll see if it comes up in oral argument. It's kind of a red flag. Like if it comes up at oral argument, it's a bad sign that, you know, the justices are not paying attention to this case and are just looking to do mischief. Ditto if we hear about, you know, questions involving taking content down. So this is sort of a strange case if you're a conservative and your whole bugbear is like big tech censorship. That's what you're angry about or whatever, because that's not this case. This case is about leaving content up. In fact, if you, quote unquote, if you're rooting for the petitioners and you win this case as a foe of, quote, big tech censorship, that's bad news. You're actually likely to start seeing more risk averse websites, which means more content gets taken down, which means this blows up in your face. So actually, you should be rooting for Gonzalez if you're conservative, only if you just hate Section 232 so much you want to cut off your nose to spite your face. But nonetheless, at the oral argument, we might see some questions about taking content down. I don't know, either because like, Somebody just wants to make dicta trying to like talk about those cases or there's a an attempt to sort of square the circle. I don't even know how you would do this, but like, how do I rule against Section 230 here? But also like 
fight big tech censorship or whatever. I, you know, good luck with that. Cases that stand on editorial alteration of content could be an issue. So a search engine offers you, say, just a snippet of a website as a preview on a results page. And there have been some attempts in the cases below to kind of make that a distinction of like, oh, you lose your protection because of that uh, shortening of the content. Like you, now you altered it. Oh, you contributed to it. And it misses the fact that the way the test should actually operate is did you materially contribute to the illegality? But that's a theory that's floating out there. So that's another one to maybe look out for during oral argument. So those are all, you know, sort of all the ways that things could go pear-shaped during the argument. One final thing I will be looking out for with oral argument. Now, I, I once again, I kind of skipped over Google's brief. It's very strong. It's kind of getting covered through my discussion of all the other things. One thing I will say about it, like any good uh, legal brief before the Supreme Court, they want to win the case before them. So they argue what they need to do to win today. Uh, and that is perfectly justified. But at several points, they really hammer on, we are a uh, neutral platform in how we recommend videos. You know, we didn't set out to recommend ISIS material. We didn't solicit ISIS material. We actively try to suppress ISIS material. That's exactly what you should say when it comes to a case involving ISIS material. But that is a bit narrow in terms of what Section 230 can and should protect. The word neutral is risky. A rule that says, oh, you encouraged content is not the best reading of Section 230. That does not provide adequate protection to uh, the Yelps and the glass doors of the world. If you say, oh, you're not neutral, and that's why you don't get Section 230 protection, um, it's very hard to draw that line in a way that excises out ISIS, so you don't get protection for that. But, oh, you do get protection for customer reviews or employer reviews. And those websites are very valuable, and, and they are really... It's hard to say that they're neutral. They are soliciting customer reviews. Well, you know that some of those customer reviews are going to be one-star reviews. That easily bleeds into saying, you have encouraged this defamatory you know, restaurant uh, review saying that our food was bad or whatever. So I will be looking out for whether, it, whether that gets missed or, or whether anybody is sticking up for the Yelps and the glass doors of the world even though it's, you know, it's not what YouTube needs to win in this case. I mentioned Holly's and Cruz's amicus briefs. I do think it is worth taking a moment. I am not going to go through all of the amicus briefs and talk about them individually, but I think Texas's amicus brief in this case deserves uh, sort of a, um, a shout out in the negative sense. And I'll return to this briefly in a minute, but as many of you know, I'm sure Texas, along with Florida, have passed social media speech codes, the thrust of which is, you know, trying to force large social media platforms to leave more speech up. So Texas's version is HB 20. And in short, what it bars is any kind of content moderation that takes content down based on viewpoint, which is very, very broad when you think about it. As I've said elsewhere, it's not clear, you know, if you allow a campaign on your website against anorexia or, or like telling people to go get help, you know, a health hotline for are you suffering from anorexia? Well, under a ban on viewpoint discrimination, that means you have to carry content where people help each other like be better at anorexia. And that's just one of many, many, many examples of how that would work. You know, um, I don't see why if you allow um, speech in favor of like racial harmony or against, you know, for gun control, like, I don't know, you may have to carry the shooter manifesto now, regardless of if you want to nitpick these extreme examples, it gives you the flavor of, you know, you're asking websites basically to not be allowed, or you're demanding, I should say, that websites not be allowed to, to moderate content. That is the total opposite of the thrust in Gonzalez versus Google, of course, right? Because the whole thing there is you, YouTube, had ISIS content floating around on your website. 
that led, although there's no proximate cause here, but somehow to this bombing that happened over there. So I want you to be liable. So you'd think that Texas would have a really tough needle to thread here because they want HB 20 to be upheld. And it, of course, is pending before the Supreme Court in a cert petition. Maybe just a little bit more about that in a moment. But you also hate Section 230 because, you know, the whole like rah-rah anti-big tech censorship thing. So what does Texas's brief say? You know, what do they try to do? Well, they do one of the fallacies that I mentioned earlier, where they try to marry the Cox-Wyden Section 230 to the Exxon Actual Communications Decency Act and say, you know, Section 230 is just about protecting kids from pornography. Well, no wrong. Uh, that is that is not at all how that worked. It only gets worse, Texas says. Section 230 reflects a deliberate choice by Congress to treat internet platforms like telephone companies. Well, think way back to quite a bit earlier in the episode now when I was discussing how it protects your retweets, it protects your blog. Section 230 protects the internet. Uh, the only reason you would make a statement like that is if you are blind to what Section 230 actually is and you are obsessed with the notion that it applies only to very large social media platforms, which is not how it works at all. In fact, there is some, they play very fast and loose and repeatedly in their brief cut out of the statutory language, the part about user. It says no provider or user of an interactive computer service, and they omit the user. They just say the provider, uh, which suggests intent, shall we say, in what they're doing. They want liability for recommendations, which is, I, I don't know how you, <laughs> so you want the platforms to be treated like telephone companies so that you can justify your HB 20 law, but then you want them to be liable for the recommendations they make, something that HB 20 literally says they cannot discriminate over. If you dig into HB 20, when it says that you cannot, quote, censor, that includes de-boosting or restricting or denying equal access or visibility to or otherwise discriminating against expression. So they are trying to strip liability for content that they are requiring be recommended. They make no effort to explain why these two things should occur together. They also don't explain why Section 230, you know, if you strip it for Rex, why the plaintiffs won't always just plead the recommendations. By the way, that's a pretty universal problem across the briefs on that side of the case. And they declare that Google would not become liable for defamation by recommending a defamatory video. That's actually in there. I'm not really sure how that works because I am not a common expert in the common law, but I believe it is every person in the publisher pipeline uh, is liable for defamation. Pretty sure that's how that works. So that one's a head scratcher. There were, I want to say like 50 amicus briefs in the case. There was a ton of amicus briefs, but Texas's gets a special shout out. Well-deserved. So that's that we've covered now what to look for. We've covered the briefs. We've covered what to look for in oral argument. We have covered the amicus briefs in particular, albeit just by highlighting that one, I suppose, and a few mentions of Hollies and uh, Cruises. One final thing to be cognizant of, uh, this is both at oral argument and just in general, you know, when I'm listening to oral argument, I'll be very curious, are the justices focused just on Gonzalez versus Google and Section 230, you know, like Section 230 as it applies to that case, and then also Section 230 just more broadly, but are they focused just on Section 230 or are they cognizant of the fact that like there is just so much internet First Amendment stuff floating around and are they trying to make all the pieces fit together. So I mentioned a pending cert petition. The 11th Circuit in Florida upheld a preliminary injunction of Florida's social media speech code. That's called SB 7072. The 5th Circuit 
in a split opinion overturned a preliminary injunction of HB 20. So in the Fifth Circuit's opinion, no pun intended, HB 20 should be allowed to go into effect. Well, both of those rulings have now been brought up to the Supreme Court and there there are petitions to review those cases. We thought that it's it's almost certain that the Supreme Court is going to grant those petitions. I cannot see how they duck this case. But they did play for time a couple weeks ago by calling for the views of the Solicitor General. So those petitions remain pending. They are floating around. And they are fundamentally about, does a private website, even a large one, have a First Amendment right to editorial discretion over the content on their website? Thus, you know, giving it the right to take stuff down, which is what Gonzalez petitioners want them to be able to do. Those are floating around. They, in some ways, are absolutely contradictory to what is going on in Gonzalez. Meanwhile, there is also a case called 303 Creative versus Alenis, which is about a individual website designer who refused to make a website for a, I believe it's a gay wedding. So it's a small website, won't make a website for a gay wedding. Um, and then that's an issue of, has that violated the public accommodation laws of Colorado? And so there's one where you're trying to force speech in the flavor of, say, HB20, but it's not a big website. And oh, now suddenly it's the cause where the conservatives think that it's the website owner who's being persecuted, whereas in the HB20 case, they want to persecute the private website. Though actually, I will say, if you just need to come up with some kind of arbitrary distinction, at least the conservatives can say, oh, you know, whatever, the website designer in Colorado is this tiny little website and the social media platforms have all this market power or whatever. And I that would be disingenuous. I'm not going to get into the big details of, of why the social media market is more fluid than that. But OK, there's a distinction. I actually think the the bigger minefield may even be for the other side, if you dig into the Solicitor General's brief in 303 Creative, they take up with gusto a speech versus conduct distinction that reads like it's straight out of the Fifth Circuit's decision sticking up for HB 20, Texas's social media speech code. It even relies on the same main precedent, a case called Rumsfeld versus Fair. Just, you know, it's the same thing, it's the same playbook the Fifth Circuit undertakes. So, you know, I don't know if the Solicitor General of the Biden administration really understands what they're doing there. So to be clear, I mean, it, there are pitfalls in all directions, like all these cases taken together, like the whole thing is a mess. It all gets a bit confusing. It's all a bit turned around, but that's exactly the thing. Will there be lines in the opinions for 303 Creative saying, rah, 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 a website has a First Amendment right to editorial discretion. People can't force it to do what it doesn't want to do. Well, oops, like, oh, you know, so now this is all language that applies in your HB 20 case and you should have now have to strike down HB 20. It all can make your head hurt very quickly. And I am going to be looking out in the argument for, you know, are the justices at least alive to the fact that all these cases are around? They're very smart people. I'm sure they are. I shouldn't say are they, I know they are, but like how much are they working through it in the oral argument? Uh, you know, how much will we know from the oral argument about how they're trying to make all of these pieces fit together? Uh, that will be a very interesting issue to watch. So stay tuned. I think I've said most of my piece here. I think we're ready for oral argument in Gonzalez versus Google. One final thread I do think we need to tie up uh, I decided to make this specifically a Gonzalez versus Google podcast because it is the case that if you want to be only slightly hyperbolic about it, that the future of the Internet hinges on. But there is a companion case called Twitter versus Tomna. Ninth Circuit did a very weird thing. We're in a weird posture here because the Ninth Circuit actually decided Tomna and Gonzalez in the same decision. And it's basically the same facts. 
Um, but because the district court in Tomna did not get into Section 230, the Ninth Circuit said, well, we are not going to get into it in the first instance in that case either. We're still, we're to similar case, we're talking about a terrorist attack and accusing the platform of having been, at least in a secondary liability sense, you know, responsible for that attack. Do we get around Section 230 is one issue. The cases are so similar that even the parties themselves recognize that Section 230 governs. Uh, the Tomney plaintiffs actually stipulated that had the petition in Gonzalez not been granted, their case would get dismissed. That's how much they understand that Section 230 governs. And yet somehow the Ninth Circuit decided, eh, whatever, and didn't do it. And so here we are, Twitter filed a conditional petition. They wanted the petition granted for review only if Gonzalez got granted. And then it did, and then the conditional got granted. So that case, I mentioned, again, probably way, way back, the Anti-Terrorism Act uh, is the underlying cause of action here under federal law. It's secondary liability. It's a civil cause of action. Um, so we have, in that case, the actual underlying merits of is a social media platform liable or potent, could, potentially liable under the Anti-Terrorism Act for knowingly providing or substantial assistance to a terrorist organization. Now, I've already misstated it from what they argue because they get into the statutory language and say, no, no, it's a terrorist act that you have to provide, knowingly provide substantial assistance to. It's not just amorphously the organization. And that's a big part of their argument. It's an aiding and abetting statute. And if you know much, again, about the common law, you'll understand like aiding and abetting is of an act and not an organization. But I'm already falling into the weeds on that one. I am not going to do full treatment of that one. I'm just going to say it's there. There is a question of like, why decide both cases? So there's been some speculation and some some requests from parties in the case. We'll decide this one and not that one. The desire, it seems, from the platforms, they they are angling some of them for getting Tomna decided that, you know, there's no liability under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And if you dismiss that one, well, then there's no underlying cause of action. So there's no need to get to Section 230. So you can just resolve Tomney in our favor and not do Gonzalez, which is interesting. I think it shows their trepidation at what uh, the sort of Justice Thomas led wing of the court might do if it gets its hands on Section 230. But I don't think that's a likely outcome, you know, <laughs> precisely because I think Justice Thomas, if not other justices, really do want to get to Section 230. You know, the fact that they granted without a circuit split suggests, you know, they they think that this is, this is their big chance. If anything, it seems more likely that they would decide Gonzalez. And then if Gonzalez goes in favor of the websites, then, you know, they won't decide Tomna would be probably the slightly more logical way to do it. But I will leave you on the true dark horse possibility. I'm not saying I expect this to happen, but I got to put a, a pin in this one. If you've been listening attentively, and again, I, you, you've been very patient, and I'm honored and privileged that you've come all this way with me on my first um, rank punditry podcast. But you will remember that I mentioned Gonzalez changed the question presented going from the petition to the merits. That is a no-no. That's just a bad idea. Because if the justices decide that the posture of the case is not what they thought it was, they can dismiss the case as improvidently granted. So, and, and Google mentions this in their brief. They're, they're not heavy-handed about it, but they remind the court that that is a possibility. So the real dark horse possibility is that the court resolves Tomna and dismisses Google versus Gonzalez, not just as like moot to Tomna, but dismisses it as improvidently granted because the petitioner fiddled with the brief, changed the question presented, you know, changed posture of the case. So I don't know. I guess if you put money on that, it's like you're, you're betting on 26 red and seeing if you, you know, you hit the jackpot, not likely, but something else to watch. Listeners, thank you so much for joining me. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. I have been ranting at you. I appreciate it so much. This has been fun for me. It was a great chance to do it. This is the perfect opportunity to do it with such a big case. It is so important. 
you know, tell your friends about this case. Uh, the people who don't know what Section 230 is, remind them that the the fate of the internet is in the balance and that they should be paying attention and make them appreciate the 26 words that created the internet. Thank you all. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.